and welcome to Enter the Rabbit Hole. Welcome, welcome along. Uh, this is the show where every week we're going to be going through a different letter of the alphabet, finding something that we find interesting that starts with that letter. And doing a deep dive on it. Yeah, that's it. So, Leash, what are we going to be talking about this week? Today is B for Boudicca. Ah, I realize that we've jumped straight in and maybe you don't even know who we are. Uh, my name is Alicia. My name is Will. And we're covering Boudicca today. <laughs> Uh, okay, so uh, this is a story that many people might be familiar with already. If they're not familiar with the actual facts, then they're probably aware of the myth, the mythology surrounding Boudicca. I would disagree because I think it's quite a UK-centric story. Mm-hmm. Uh, as uh, an American, I never really heard of Boudicca before watching Horrible Histories on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Um, she's something that is covered, I think, in primary schools in the UK. I don't know if it's still covered in primary schools. And certainly if you watch the History Channel or National Geographic in, in the UK, if you watch it on Sky, you probably every so often come across a documentary about Boudicca, what we know, or at least what we think we know about Boudicca. And of course, there's a huge statue of her on a chariot. Is it on the London Bridge? Or? Yeah, I believe so. I think the name of the statue is Boudicca and Her Daughters. It's really iconic. You have probably seen it if you've looked at any tourist photos of London. So this Victorian-era statue of this woman wearing flowing robes, a flowing tunic on top of this massive chariot with her two daughters kind of crouched down at her side and these two horses rearing up in front of her and she looks like she's ready to go. She's ready to go into battle and, and fight. Yeah, it's really powerful. Yeah, it's very, like I said, it's iconic. If you if you don't know, you, you've probably seen it at some point. So who is Boudicca? Should we start with her name? Well, her... Her name has gone through a couple different iterations. Yeah, right? she's kind of she's like Prince. Yeah, yeah, she's gone yeah. through a couple of different name changes. Um, the warrior, formerly known as yeah, and then at one point she was just a symbol. Nobody knew how to say her name. When I was younger, I think older historians will talk about how when they were at school, she was referred to as Bodicea, and now they've had to wrap their head around calling her Boudicca. When I was at school, I was told that some people refer to her as Bodicea, some people refer to her as Boudicca, but didn't have any follow-up information as to why. And the Romans also called her something else, right? Yeah, well, it the, the Bodicea is actually, I think, a mistranslation either from Cassius Dio or from Tacitus. So they've just added an extra I to her name. Uh, and her name in Gaelic is actually Budug. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly for all our Gaelic-speaking listeners out there. Uh, but each iteration essentially means the same thing. It's all victory. Yeah, victory to be victorious, to emerge in victory. So it's a very inspiring name. Spoiler alert, it's a bit ironic. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. We'll get to that later on. So, Boudicca, the woman of a thousand names. But uh, no matter which sources you consult, you kind of get the same story, the same bullet points over and over again. And So there were yeah. only two real written sources, and they're both from the Romans, and they are Tacitus and Dio. Yeah, Cassius Dio. Neither of them were there at the event, and mm -hmm. we also have to be aware of 
the Romans treat history as more of a literature. They Mm -hmm. don't treat it as a historical account. So a lot of these have a little seasoning of uh, whatever they believe at the time. We can also think of it as their version of a historical retelling is kind of like the historical nonfiction you might pick up in a Waterstones as part of their uh, top 10 bestsellers nowadays. So what people are currently saying about the American government is going to be very different to what people were saying about the American government even 10 years ago. So I guess in there, there's a form of propaganda or maybe a form of PR. There's there's a bit of spin going on. Sure. And let's not try and be too high and mighty because all history is written, quote unquote, by the victor, right? And all has a bit of a twist to what you may know, what you might not know. Yeah. That is very true, although I would say, especially in the case of Boudicca, it's hard to really drill down and find out what the what the quote-unquote truth is. Yeah, especially because the Celts didn't have a written language, and they didn't have anybody who is writing a history down. So we don't have any first-hand accounts, and we certainly don't have any Celtic accounts. Yeah. So should we start off with who the Celts were? Sure. Or, again, who we think they were. So uh, the Celts, around about the 1400 BCE era, are this group of tribes that emerged from the Danube region of Europe and then migrated across Europe. So, again, as a British person, I was brought up to believe that the Celts were somehow distinctively British or uh, distinctively Scottish or distinctively Irish, and they weren't, actually. They came from all across Europe. They you could find high numbers of them in places like France and in places like Spain. They were, the way that I'm thinking of Celts now, based on other people's descriptions, are kind of like when people describe Westerners, right? When Mm. people talk about Western people. So they're kind of thinking of uh, similar language. Most of us speak English. They're thinking of similar cultures, so a kind of uh, Judeo-Christianic culture, and similar values, similar a similar oral tradition, perhaps. So the Celts, we think they had similar language, they had similar culture, so that's how we identify them as kind of a distinct group of people. Um, but really, the term Celt was, we think it was coined by the Greeks, and for the Greeks, it was basically their version of the word barbarian, And barbarian comes from the sound that people make who don't speak Latin, right? They sound like bar, 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 bar. Yeah, hence barbarian. So the Celts, as far as we're aware, that was the term the ancient Greeks used to just be like, oh, those guys over there, the ones who aren't Greek. So today we're talking specifically about the Celts living in Britain at the time of the Romans' first colonization. Um, So we're going all the way back to about 900 BCE when the Celts first arrived, and then fast forward and straight through to about 54 BCE. So can you tell me anything about uh, what the Celtic culture looks like? I mean, I know that they painted themselves blue in war. They often, like... (laughs) ran screaming naked, supposedly, at their enemies. Yeah, this is some, based on some accounts of the Celts, specifically uh, the Celts from France, the Gauls, apparently would fight naked. And uh, it actually gives us one of our other name for the Celts, the Picts, which means the painted people. So we have this idea that they were either co- either covered head to toe in tattoos or that they would 
cover themselves in some kind of pigment before going into battle. We know that they worked in various different kinds of metals, so we can find lots of ornate jewellery from different burial sites across places like the UK. And Celtic jewellery has this very kind of ornate... Uh, often covered in loops and circles. We know that they were, by and large, a peaceful people. They weren't necessarily going out and conquering vast swathes of land in order to subjugate them. Uh, we, we know that they were deeply religious and they had their own kind of religious class known as the Druids. Yeah, and we, we do know that the Romans were a bit frightened of the Druids because mm-hmm. they saw them as this type of people who possibly performed human sacrifices, definitely performed animal sacrifices, mm-hmm. um, who were deeply religious and, uh, and terrifying to look at. Yeah, they must have been quite a challenge for the Romans as well, because when the Romans colonized different parts of the world, they would typically export Roman gods, but in in a very interesting way. So they would point to some of these local water deity and said, oh, Minerva, you're talking about Minerva. Yeah, we've got her. We're we're talking about the same the same god essentially. And so I think they encountered the Druids, and maybe with the Druids they saw more of a challenge to fold them into their way of thinking. Yeah. So they must have been quite intimidated by the Druids, I imagine. So we should note that as in all things, uh Will and I are not experts. We're not historians. Uh we are only uh, expounding on all of the massive amount of research that we have done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of the point of the podcast. We are taking what we think of as a fresh look at something that we found interesting, but we know very little about at the outset. And then by the end of the podcast, we hopefully know a little bit more. So, so yeah, that's what some of what we know about the Celts. Okay, so in... 54 uh, BCE, uh, Caesar invades Britain. He, so he tries in 55 and eventually succeeds in invading a large amount of Britain, but has to return to Gaul. And so his influence there is is not strong. And actually, part of his... Uh, nobody's entirely sure why he goes to Britain at this time. One of the reasons given is that, again, the idea of the Celts and the shared cultural identity that the Celts in in Britain, I I keep wanting to refer to it as the UK, although that as an idea didn't exist for another uh, 1,500 years, but he thought of the Celts in Britain as helping the Celts in Gaul, uh, which seems spurious. It, It seems like he was just looking for a reason to go there. And also, I guess it was part of Rome's remit. So in order for Rome to stay an empire, they have a massive army, right, that's very well trained. Mm -hmm. But part of what the army gets is the land that they conquer. So Mm -hmm. soldiers are given land in areas that they conquer in order to keep them loyal. But that means that they have to keep conquering land. So Caesar has to continually push out and continually wage campaigns. It's a very capitalist system, isn't it? I don't I don't want to get too Marxist this early in the podcast, but the notion that every every quarter you need to be expanding, every year you need to be expanding. And yeah, you're right. They had this system whereby the legionnaires would be promised a tract of land upon their retirement from the Roman legion in order to conquer those lands 
they needed more legionnaires who were typically folded in from new territories that they'd already conquered. Now that they had more legionnaires, they needed more land to conquer. So uh, it was it was a system that was bound to implode at some point, even though we're not there at this moment in time. So after Caesar invades Britain and is eventually murdered, in 43 CE, Emperor Claudius begins uh, a new invasion of Britain. And of course, the, the Celts are a group of different tribes. So one of the tribes and our main players for today are the Iceni. Their king is called Prasutagus, mm-hmm. um, and he aligns himself with the Romans. So basically, in order to keep his position as king, in order to keep some of his wealth, they become a tribute state. So they pay Rome but still get a measure of their freedom. Yeah. Initially, some of these tribes rebel against the Romans. However, all these rebellions are put down pretty quickly. Again, probably owing to the fact that we think of the Celts as being this one group of people, and and they're not. I keep thinking of them in terms of maybe various different Afghani tribes who then came together under the under the Taliban, or maybe thinking of them in terms of Native Americans, maybe the way that Western colonizers would think of the uh, the first Native Americans when they arrived in the Americas. We think of them as being this one homogenous group of people, and they're not. And for that reason, that's one of the reasons why when they initially stood up to the Romans, it was quashed immediately. Yeah, we have one... One big rebellion in 51 by Caratacus, mm-hmm. um, who tries to get quite a few tribes under the same banner, but it ultimately fails. And then finally, in 54 CE, uh, Nero takes Claudius' place as emperor. So we have our main players, which are Nero, Prasutagus, and Boudicca, who's Prasutagus' wife. Mm-hmm. And from here, we're going to take a short break. See you in a bit. Hello and welcome back. So before the break, we had introduced some of our key players in the story of Boudicca. So we've just talked about how the Emperor Nero has just come to power. And at this time, he's got Britain under his hand as part of the Roman Empire. We're talking a little bit about King Prasutagus. Should we talk a little bit about what it means to be a king as a member of a Celtic tribe as opposed to our notion of a modern day king? Sure. Yeah, so he's not in charge of an entire country. As we were saying earlier, the Celts are individual tribes. So he is in charge of the Iceni. And Boudicca is his wife. And I suppose she has a certain amount of clout. So one of the things that the Romans find really perplexing and maybe even kind of disgusting or off-putting about the Celtic people is that they have powerful women and that women are allowed to wield a certain amount of power aren't they? So to have a queen uh, in a Celtic tribe and only a queen is not unheard of. There are some disagreements about whether women were actually warriors in Celtic tribes, um, but women did have probably more power than their Roman counterparts. Mm -hmm. They could inherit property. They had some divorce rights. Again, like we're not saying this is some sort of beacon for women's rights. No. In terms of how Romans look at women, 
as as less than them. They have no rights, really, in the Roman Empire. The Celtic tribes elevate women more, and the fact that a woman could be a ruler is something that is quite disgusting to them. I guess the notion in the Roman Empire is that women are second-class citizens and that they're there to be seen and not heard, essentially. So the notion of a woman who could be in charge of anything, let alone fighting in battles, taking part in war, is just kind of beyond them. It's maybe something that kind of fascinates them on a certain level as well. So as we said earlier, King Prasitagus is a puppet king and he is trying to appease the Roman nation. So at the time of his death, he wills half of his estate to his daughters and he wills the other half of his estate to the Roman Empire. Sounds like a great idea. Everyone's a winner, except... So what he wants and what he's hoping is that Nero will be happy with half of his tribal land, mm-hmm. half of his land, which is in modern day uh, Norfolk and Suffolk. Yeah. But of course, Nero is is not happy with being given only half of this land. And the fact probably irks him that two girls, two young daughters have been given the other half of the land. Also, it's the daughters are never named or specified. It's thought that uh, Prostagus and Boudicca's daughters are probably in their are teenagers. They're they're certainly unmarried. Mm-hmm. So this was, I think, part of a PR campaign for Nero to make himself appear as a more powerful leader. This is part of a big campaign of his to go around debt collecting and boosting the coffers of the Roman Empire. Prior to this, I'd actually seen that Rome had lent, quote-unquote, Britain 40 million sesteras which would be the equivalent of about $60 million in modern-day money, and they expected the Brits to pay this money back with interest. However, Brits didn't really need this. They were kind of a mineral-rich nation, and I I don't know how much printed coins, printed money were, were actually worth to them. So from what I can tell, the coin was useful in that it allowed them to trade with, with Roman partners. And the, the, the Celtic tribes were big on trade. From some sources, uh, it's not like all of the tribes were given a share of this money. And it doesn't seem that the Iceni tribe was given this loan. It seems like the tribute... I can never treat Trinobante tribe mm-hmm. was kind of pushed into taking this loan in order to use it to trade. So basically they're giving them, say, like a hundred thousand dollars for you to be able to kind of convert your your bartering system mm-hmm. into a money-based system. But then they call in that loan. Again, it's not dissimilar to I think when the British Empire originally went into China and they were trying to trade for tea. And so they, they were trying to get one over in the Chinese emperor by convincing him that Britain had something of wealth. That's kind of what it sounds like here. They were they were setting the Britons up somehow and trying to treat them like rubes. Um, you mentioned the Triobantes earlier, or Triobantes, who were a tribe just south of the Iceni. Keep that name in your head because they're going to come up a little bit later on. So Nero decides he's going to go, he's going to collect his cash, and he's going to take all of the estate, all of the money that's been willed from Prastatagus. He's not going to split it. Okay, but stop and wait because this title, or this episode is titled Boudicca and we haven't really mentioned Boudicca at all. True, very true. So there's not a lot of information on her. 
it's thought that she might have been born in in 30 CE, mm-hmm. but they have no no real information. Um, the timeline that we're in right now, uh, when Nero starts calling in debts, is 60 CE. So yeah. she is probably in her 30s, but again, we don't know. We can assume that she was definitely of childbearing age because she's meant to have two teenage daughters. We don't really have much in the way of a physical description either. Uh, When Cassius Dio is writing a second-hand account of all of this, third-hand, sorry, third-hand account of all of this, uh, he describes her as being very tall, having a harsh voice, having uh, long, tawny hair, his description could really mean anything. So some people read that as she's a fiery redhead, which seems to be most popular depictions of Boudicca's as this fiery redhead, which I think is another way of saying she's feisty or she's a bit of a troublemaker. As, as a fellow redhead, I get that. Uh, she, But some people think she could have been blonde. She could have been brunette for all we know. She probably had hair. We know that she probably had hair but on I, her head. I think this description of Boudicca tells us more about the Romans than it does about the Celts, mm-hmm. in that she had long, unbound hair, which the Romans see as, um, like... It's kind of unkempt, I yeah, think. Yeah, it's barbarous. They're, yeah. Women should show decorum. They uh, should be soft and gentle. Um, they should show deference to their husband at all times. And for her to be large, sort of mannish, mm-hmm. to have this long hair that's kind of like falling about her shows that to us, it might make her look powerful. To the Romans, it makes her look like an animal. Mm-hmm. They also describe her as having this big torque, which is some uh, an item of chunky Celtic jewelry slash a form of armor as well, potentially around her neck. So maybe another way of saying she's a bit gaudy, she's a bit trashy. The modern interpretation of her, I think, is that she has this really striking image and we've sexualized her to a certain extent. But for the Romans, oh, check her out. Oh my goodness. Look at the state of her. Yeah, but let's be honest, you can't have a powerful woman without big old boobies. Of course, yeah. So Cassius Dio doesn't go into details, but I think if they had had the cup system uh, in in ancient Rome, then he would have probably said that she was at least a double D. We we can infer that. It's read between the lines. It's there, yeah. Okay, so back to the story itself. Prasitagus has kicked the bucket. Nero sends in some troops to... We've said Nero, but... We're really talking about the Roman commanders in Britain have sent in some troops to uh, reclaim that money. Yeah, the this would have been the Roman governor in Britain, Suetonius? Suetonius? Uh, I'm not sure about his name. I do know that Paulinus is yeah. the one in charge of... He's the general. Suetonius Paulinus, yeah. So they go in, they take the money... Boudicca's daughters are raped. So they they refuse to give up their weapons and their money. Mm-hmm. And for showing um, for not showing deference to their Roman leaders, Boudicca's daughters are raped. When Boudicca tries to defend her daughters, she is stripped down and, and beaten. Basically, she's whipped, which is what the Romans do to slaves. Yeah. So she is shown on all fronts that she's not an equal. She's being sexualized by having her clothes ripped off, but then treated like a slave by being whipped, and her daughters have been raped. This is obviously a big deal. 
but it's an even bigger deal when you consider the following. First, Boudicca was a queen, or at very least uh, a woman of very high standing. Her daughters would have been considered princesses. What do we know about royal bloodlines and royal marriage? If you are not a virgin, you are sullied. You Worthless. are spoiled good. So these girls have been... Uh, I mean, th- there's no nice way of putting it, essentially. They, they've they been forcibly raped. They're, yeah, they, they've had their virginities taken away from them. Secondly, at this time, Boudicca, as well as the other Celts, would have been considered Roman citizens. Even though they weren't living in Rome, they were citizens of the Empire. You just don't go and publicly flog a, a citizen of the Roman Empire. That's just not the done thing. So the the Romans are really treating her as as a less than right now, as less than human. And and all the 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 Celtic tribes were were treated uh, in a similar manner to some extent. They're they're treated as as less than Roman citizens, of course, because they're not in Roman terms like land owning male citizens, right? Um, with power in the Roman Forum. But Boudicca then supposedly appeals to the neighboring tribes and and gets their support for rebellion against the Romans. However, how true this is, there's some debate, because how much would your neighboring tribe care if the king is dead and the queen was flogged? Probably not a lot. But again, we said the Trinobantes had their loans taken in and their weapons taken away from them. And that is something they would care about. Yeah. So this is presumably something that has been simmering beneath the surface for a while. When we think of all these tribes banding together, it's not to honor this woman who has been publicly beaten or her daughters being raped. It's because they already had beef with the Romans. So after this, Boudicca rises a force of around about 120,000 people. And then she goes on a march. Now, luckily for Boudicca at the time, Suetonius Paulinus was away on campaign. He was off in Wales at Anglesey. You remember the Druids we mentioned earlier? So they wanted to take out the Druids in Anglesey, which was like a holy site for them. This is actually one of my favorite images from the from this story, and it's a complete side story. One account I heard said that when the Romans approached this island by boat, the Druids, uh, the, the male priests were on the beach praying. All of these druid women rush towards the Romans. They're immediately cut down, but they're they're screaming, and the Romans describe them as being like animals. They cut through them, and then the druid monks approach the Romans, and they cut them down as well. Then, out of nowhere, people run alongside, and they set fire to this mound in the middle of the battle. The Romans realize that they're essentially standing on top of a funeral pyre and they have unwittingly unleashed a human sacrifice. So they've they've been they've taken part in a human sacrifice. And so maybe the Druids knew they were going to be killed. Maybe the Druids wanted to be killed. But this is one of the things that is catalogued as one of the the omens. The Romans are really big on omens. Which we can infer, you know, if you look back with hindsight, if you know what happens with the rebellion in Britannia, if you know what happens with Boudicca and her story, you can look back and say, oh, and yeah, I remember all this other weird stuff happened. So 
the uh, the human sacrifice with the druids is one of these terrible omens. There was another story about a statue that spontaneously fell over. So a lot of creepy stuff is going on and, and there's tremors in the water and there's blood in the moon, etc, etc. So Boudicca has gathered up her forces and she goes on the march. And her first target, her first target is, uh, oh god, I'm Modern gonna... day Colchester, yeah. which is... Camelodunum. Camelodun, I think is. <laughs> Camelodunum. Yeah, modern day Colchester. So uh, what, is, what does Boudicca get up to? So in, in modern day Colchester, because I'm not going to attempt to say that name again, um, she is not merciful. Mm-hmm. No, um, she is not. I, I wouldn't ever call um, Boudicca in, in this rampage uh, merciful. She... Uh, attacks basically anyone who is a Roman citizen, uh, men, women, children, um, when they retreat to a temple, um, including like the soldiers, because for the Romans, temples are safe spaces. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of people who, a lot of homeless people live. They're priests. They're obviously the home of the gods and goddesses. Um, so they retreat to the temple as uh, a safe space and Boudicca sets fire to the temple and burns them alive. Yeah. At this stage, as we said, Paulinus is off in campaign and the Romans aren't taking this threat really seriously. So they initially send 200 unarmed slaves to try and deal with this. They don't. And then they send in uh, another, I think it's 2,500 reinforcements. So they send in a legion. Yeah. And, um, and a legion is a big deal because a legion is basically an army. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're not often defeated. And if they mm-hmm. are defeated, it's a huge deal. Boudicca wipes them out um, just by sheer numbers. And I think they're also on a high from... Uh, basically massacring uh, Colchester. And so they take out this legion and that's when Paulinus starts to understand this is a major threat. I I think part of this as well might be when I think of this battle, I imagine that they're engaging in this kind of guerrilla warfare and and house-to-house fighting. The Romans are I mean, if you know anything, one of the first things you learn about Romans in school is their military tactics and why they were so effective as soldiers. But most of those battles take place out in the open. If if you're out in the open with a Roman legion, you're going down. And I think they're kind of caught off guard and they don't know how to initially deal with this, with these tactics. So, uh, yeah, they, they just get wiped off the map. And then there are some reports of what Boudicca's forces did uh, at Colchester. It's pretty grisly stuff, isn't it? Yeah. So supposedly, again, not sure how much of this is true and how much is Roman propaganda. Boudicca it has supposedly beheaded babies I'm not sure if she crucifies women or like puts them, like strings them up basically, has cut off their breasts and sewn their breasts to their mouths. Mm-hmm. I she she doesn't exactly show that she is like willing to let people go free. She's obviously out for revenge, but this could be like a a, a way to undermine um the Celtic tribes yeah. revolt. Yeah. Thinking of it like uh, look at the way that they rebel, look at the way they engage in warfare and absolutely no quarter is given to anyone. If we then go and put down these people by any means necessary, we're absolutely right to do so because look look at what they do to people. I think, I don't think this is true. 
I think this is, I think there's a lot of propaganda in Tacitus's version of events, and, and we'll get onto exactly who these sources are later on. But even if this were true, Boudicca is not a military commander in the traditional sense. We're not dealing with a top-down chain of command where everyone is reporting to everybody else or where there would be outside news media covering this. So if you had a bunch of, oh, I don't know, naked human beings stacked up like sandbags and people posing for pictures in front of it, then that that would go viral and there, there would be uh, an absolute PR storm happening. However... Yeah, even if this did happen, I don't think Boudicca was the one who was actually doing it, and I don't think she was the one who actually commissioned it. I think if there was all this, if people were incited enough to get into a fight with the Romans in the first place, there's there's probably a lot going on beneath the surface. You're probably going through some stuff. Sure. I mean, you've had your homeland invaded, you've had um, your people raped and things taken away from you, your your means of fighting back taken away from you. Mm-hmm. Um, and and again, you don't have like any like checks and balances in this military. And even if you did, in this time period, uh, rape is perfectly acceptable within military means by by most armies mm-hmm. and, and other horrific, even to this day, um, other... It, yeah, Horrific I mean, crimes. it's considered the spoils of war to a certain extent. Did we mention the fact that the temple that they sent fire to was commissioned in honour of Emperor Claudius and that the Celts were forced to pay taxes, uh, increased taxes in order to build the temple in the first place? Yeah, so if you rock up there, you're you're not going to be leaving it as you found it. Uh, what is, I guess all of this is to say that, you know, they, they were pretty angry <laughs> when they arrived in Colchester. Okay, so after Colchester and the Legion, they then attack um, what is now modern-day London. Yeah, Londinium. Yeah, and they, uh, they, they pick up more, more warriors along the way, more fighters, mm-hmm. and their numbers swell to supposedly around 230,000. Mm. After Londinium, they hit which is what is now modern day St. Albans, uh Veritalanium. Veritalanium, yeah. And here by this stage, Boudicca's forces have estimated to have killed somewhere between seventy to eighty thousand Roman citizens. So they've really gone on a rampage. Again, these figures could be inflated somewhat, but they they have just torn sway a swathe across the country, and they've really decimated everyone that's come up against them. And so much so that this stage, Emperor Nero considers pulling out of Britannia altogether, uh, just abandoning the colony and going back to the mainland. So this is this is kind of unprecedented in in Roman history. And the reason that she's able to attack all of these places is because uh, Paulinus is still trying to get back from Wales. It's mm-hmm. it's still like a couple of days march and he has legions with him, but he can't reach uh, Londinium or uh, Vera. Verulanium, yeah. Verulanium in time in order to stop her. So he only gets to see the aftermath. Yeah. 
So on his way back, he is slowly but surely making his way back towards Boudicca's army, and he is accruing, he's trying to generate uh, more Roman soldiers as he goes. So at this stage, he's trying to call Roman legionnaires out of retirement, which I just love the idea of. I love, I, I would love to see this in a movie, like a retired legionnaire. He's just like chopping wood in his back garden, like he's living in the back of beyond. And then just like uh, a Roman general shows up and he's got like a, his little beret and he, without, beret. Even, without <laughs> even turning around. Yeah, trust me, just follow it. Without even turning around, the retired legionnaire is like, Colonel. I knew it was you. And he's like, I need you, John. I need you, John, John Ennius. I need you to come out of retirement. We need a man with your skills. And he's like, I told you, you know, those days are behind me. I'm farming potatoes now. I'm a potato farmer. And meanwhile, like all his potatoes are drenched in blood. But yeah, he's like. And also there's no such thing as potatoes yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, he uh, he begrudgingly like comes back out of retirement. Mm-hmm. Probably didn't happen that way. No, and uh, if it did, he was probably murdered anyway. Yeah. Um, so eventually, Boudicca's army and the Romans meet in what is called the Battle of Watling Street. Mm-hmm. I don't know why it's called that, uh, because we don't know where it is. Uh, basically, it's a valley somewhere. And along the way, Boudicca has picked up more men. She's also picked up a load of women and children in wagons behind yeah. their army. So street apparently is an Anglo-Saxon word. When we hear this, we think of, again, this this idea that it's all going down in a back alley, like they're having a fight outside a pub on a, on a Saturday night. But street just means road. We think it's somewhere around about the Midlands. We think it cuts uh, like a diagonal strip somewhere from the northwest to the southeast of the country. But as Alicia was saying, we really don't know for sure. Uh, so yeah, you mentioned this big valley, and that's bad news for the Celts, isn't it? The Celts are are not strategy minded, so they they are drawn into a valley, which means that the Romans have the high ground, and the Romans are highly trained infantrymen. So they employ tactics which allow them to like bring men to the front, fight the Celts, mm-hmm. and then basically draw back to the back. So they're always putting refreshed men at the front and they're all heavily armed with armor, with uh, shields. And- yeah, so think of that classic idea of a Roman legionnaire. You've got the big rectangular shaped shield, which they can use to essentially form like a tortoise shell in front of them. It's basically impenetrable if you've got Romans evenly spaced. So they overlap. Yeah, they overlap one another. They've got the javelin, which is an incredible long distance weapon. They can, this javelin can pierce through chainmail. It can pierce through armor, which the Celts don't have a lot of anyway to begin with. Supposedly, they did create chainmail. Yeah. But these people probably did not have one very much chainmail, and two, it was probably not very effective against uh, the Roman weapons. Yeah, we can assume that they're not smelting chainmail on the fly. They're they're literally they're probably picking up swords uh, and and spears as they go. And yeah, the the Roman legion are just incredibly. They're incredibly well disciplined. You could think of them as like the Navy SEALs uh, or the SAS of their time. They they know their stuff. And this is them in their element. This isn't is it? this is their life, is is marching and fighting. And and they have 
way fewer numbers. So there, Paulinus has about 10,000 men versus around 230 to 250,000 um, Celts. And so you, you, you would think that the Celts would have just overwhelming number. Yeah. But the lack of technology and the lack of strategy means that the Celts just race forward into battle and are just struck down. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure how it originally pans out this way. So I don't know if the Celts are surprised by the incoming Roman army or if they, if they call them out and if they are just short-sighted enough to go for it and think that they can defeat them in, in overwhelming numbers. If, if they had just melted out of the trees and then ran back into the forest, it would be a different matter. But here they are, mm, lambs to the slaughter comes to the mind. And so when the Celts realize their mistake, they try to retreat. However, they are forced into the wagon trains that they have uh, created as a cordon against the Romans, they come up against them, and so the entire time they're uh, they're they're basically coming head on against other Celts that are coming up behind them. So they're blocked on three sides, basically. They're mm-hmm. blocked by the walls of the valley, and then they're trapped by their own wagon train behind them, which was supposed to be like their their victory train. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the only way is either back into the Romans or fighting through their own people to try and escape. So they, they've... I, I just love the idea as well. There are women and children in this wagon train. And I can't help but think it's something... I don't know if every culture does this, but, uh, you know, in my hometown... If the police show up at somebody's like drug den, if one of your neighbors has like a bunch of drugs in their house, then uh, immediately like everybody's going to pile onto the street. And I wonder if this was like the Celtic equivalent of that, like, come out, see a show, we're going to kill some Romans, check this out. And then they uh, unfortunately end up in the fray as well. And also Romans would have thought this to be quite disgusting as well, to have women actively watch a battle. They would not have understood that. Uh, So it makes them even more animal-like in the Romans' view. Mm -hmm. So, the Celts are defeated. We don't know what happens to Boudicca at the end of all this. There's some accounts that she commits suicide by taking poison. Again, there's different ways to view this. You could view this as being the coward's way out. However, some people think that this was a more noble way to die because this is essentially like the commander taking responsibility for her actions. Suicide is a noble way out, according to the Romans, but not suicide by poison. Oh, okay. So suicide by poison, which is also what Cleopatra Cleopatra did, being bitten by a snake, is seen as a coward's way out. The true version of suicide is to fall on your own sword. And so Boudicca committing suicide by poison is just another, like, jab that Tacitus takes at her. Also, Um, can you imagine trying to fall on your own? So, like, how many times do you almost do that right before you, you know, before you just, like, try and hang yourself? It just seems like a really hard way to kill yourself. I don't, are you, like, balancing the sword on a chair? Like, do you get a friend to hold it? I don't. Anywho, so... Other reports suggested that Boudicca uh, fled the field and then died of her injuries. We just don't know. But she, we, we assume that she died after this and she, she doesn't crop up again. So uh, let's talk about a radical idea that maybe Boudicca didn't exist at all. Yeah. Um, so we should talk about the, I guess, the two main sources for the Boudicca story. So the first is Tacitus. Now, Tacitus... 
he writes uh, his annals. I tried really hard not to make a joke about that. Uh, And during the reign of Tiberius, now the annals are essentially kind of, he's talking about the life and times of Emperor Claudius through to the Emperor Nero and it's it's not quite a satire. It's kind of like an indictment of the Roman way of life, uh, comparing it to the greatness of former Rome and how they're just kind of living through the end times now. Things are terrible and, you know, things will never be good again. He writes, so he's writing about a lot of different aspects of Roman life. However, Boudicca's story comes up when he's talking about the colonization of Britannia. Now, Tacitus is writing around about, uh, this is, what, 100 years after? Um, it's So he's writing in 116 right. CE. Uh, this has all happened in 60 to 61 CE. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he is writing about from the reign of Tiberius through to the end of Nero's reign. And so he was not there. However, supposedly his father-in-law was there, and Tacitus is a big fan of his father-in-law. Yeah, so he's writing about his father-in-law's campaign in Britannia and how his forces came up against Boudicca. Then, a long time after this, so 155 CE... Uh, no, actually, sorry, I've written the uh, I've written the birth date of Cassius Dio. So Cassius Dio lived between 155 CE and 235 CE. At some point during that, he wrote his 80 book history of the Roman Empire. 80 books. I've I've written 80 page here, but I, I'm pretty sure it was uh, he he was writing a long form history of the Roman Empire, and he contains this account of Boudicca, which essentially is like an addendum so he briefly covers the story of Boudicca we can assume that he's going largely upon the original works of Tacitus because he doesn't really add much he adds some speeches um, but he he is by and large just taking the bullet points and then recovering the story Uh, all of which is to say that there are no when it comes to the story of Boudicca there's no real first-hand sources and there is evidence of the Celts. There's evidence of a rebellion against the Romans. There's actually in uh, London what they refer to as the Boudicca Lair, which is so a... So it's, it's called the Boudicca yeah, Catastrophe the bu- Lair. Yeah. And basically in London, archaeologists can see a layer of soot and ash and burned artifacts. So they know that there was a major catastrophe in London. There was a battle. But obviously that can't tell you who was in charge or no. w- what exactly happened. And we found things like burial mounds to what we think of as being noble or wealthy Celtic women, one of whom may be Boudicca, but there's no... Unfortunately, we don't have a gravestone with her name on it, or we don't have any kind of DNA evidence. So we're just going on the words of these two authors, essentially. So we listened to a podcast called uh, You're Dead to Me by Greg Jenner, mm-hmm. who uh, is one of the writers of Horrible Histories. Um, and in the podcast about Boudicca, he has a historian named Dr. Emma Suthin, I believe is her mm-hmm. name. And her specialty is in Roman women. She believes that Boudicca is an analogy for the rape of Lucretia. So she believes that Boudicca may not have existed at all. Rather, Tacitus is using her story as an allegory for Nero's tyranny. So basically, the rape of Lucretia is about the founding of the Roman Republic 
a noble woman is raped by the son of the Etruscan tyrant king. She commits suicide the noble way by stabbing herself in the heart. That's how you do it. Yeah. But not before exacting a vow from the men in her life that she will be avenged. The main player in this is Brutus, who leads a rebellion against the Etruscan king and his family and runs them out of Rome, basically, and forms the Roman Republic. In Tacitus's version of Boudicca, Nero is the tyrant king. And Boudicca plays both Lucretia, who is quote-unquote raped, or her daughters are raped, and also Brutus, who is rising up against this tyrant king. But her being both, Boudicca being both a woman and not a Roman means that she could never win. So it's kind of like if you were to watch 10 Things I Hate About You instead of reading The Taming of the Shrew. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Tacitus has essentially, uh, essentially turned the story into like a quirky rom-com <laughs> with Heath Ledger. It's a, it's a satire. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, rom-com. So why, why would Tacitus do this? Uh, why is Nero the tyrant king? Nero rises to power after his mother murders his stepfather, who is also his uncle. So his nice. mother marries her own uncle in order to gain power. Um, I think I've I think I've seen uh, this video online yeah. somewhere. I might have seen some videos like this. Did it give your computer viruses? Uh, I I will check after this. Yeah. So she murders Claudius, who is Nero's uncle. Nero rises to power at 17. He is kind of controlled by his mother, but also by his tutors. He eventually orders his mother to be murdered and is, is kind of controlled by his tutors, but he doesn't have a lot of time for actual ruling. He instead is very interested in the arts. Uh, he's very popular with the lower classes because he abolishes capital punishment. He lowers taxes for them. He's not in favor of what up until that point was very popular in, in the Roman Empire, which was just this constant military expansion, constant military spending. So as we were saying earlier, one of the things that he does early in his reign is uh, try to recoup some of the money that Rome has uh, up until that point kind of been spending willy-nilly. So in a lot of senses, he, he sounds like a very, by, by our standards today, a very modern, very pragmatic, almost kind of centrist leader. Yeah, he also allows slaves to bring civil complaints against bad masters. Um, all these things are things that we would think of as positives. However, all people, there's no such thing as just good and bad, right? Mm -hmm. So um, he, he does possibly murder his wife, definitely has his mother murdered, possibly murders his, uh, his stepbrother. He also doesn't care much for being emperor. He's much more interested in the arts. So instead of funding more public works like sewage systems and things like that, he's more interested in being a charioteer and a liar player. And he probably just looked around the Roman Empire and was like, you know what, like there, we have so many sewers and so many roads that like, 2,000 years from now, people will still be, like, falling over them and tripping over them when they're just trying to, like, dig a plot of land. So, like, this is probably enough. Yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah, it's enough roads. So he he also appeared on stage, like, on, on the theater stage, 
For Tacitus, this is unacceptable. He's not showing qualities of being an emperor. He's showing qualities of, of being like a flight of fancy, basically. He And he he's not into military expansion. He's not into typical like masculine qualities. So he's blamed for when there's like the great fire of Rome, which takes out quite a lot of Rome. And this is where we get the that old adage that when Rome burned, Emperor Nero f- fiddled. He was fiddling. He was having a fiddle. Yeah, he yeah. was playing the lyre. He was, <laughs> yeah, which, you know. But they never say, while well, Rome burned, Nero liared. Mm, doesn't he, have the same ring to it. No, it doesn't. He then accuses Christians of setting the fire and kind of like pushes the blame off onto the Christians who are then kind of massacred. So fortunately, that's the last time in history we'll ever see a small marginalized religious group be blamed for somebody (laughs) somebody else's wrongdoing. Don't worry, folks. So Tacitus doesn't like Nero. 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 Um, for all these reasons, he sees him as like a murderous pervert and he, and Nero quite likes Greek culture, which he sees as like disgusting. Ugh. Um. Olives. So. Feta. That's the reason feta is delicious. So are olives. Uh, Tacitus, you're wrong in this instance. But that's one of the reasons why Tacitus might have used him in this satire, like might have made him out to be a tyrant king and taken the place of uh, the Etruscan king mm-hmm. in the rape of Lucretia. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have to take all of this with a pinch of salt, don't we? Uh, but many people didn't. And so over time, this image of Boudicca, Bodicea for a long time has been cemented in our mind as being a real person. And I think to a lot of people, she she is real, no matter what evidence you could present to dictate otherwise, they just, there's something about not wanting to lose that image, right? It, it's, the same idea that has kept Robin Hood along for so long, right? I mean, there's very little actual evidence that somebody called Robin Hood ever existed, and yet it's just such a fun idea, and in some senses, like, a very necessary idea that we want to keep this character alive. I think it's the same with Boudicca. So, should we take a short break, and then we can maybe talk about how she's been um, reimagined and rebranded over the over the centuries? Yeah, so yeah. let's take a short break now. See you soon. See you soon. Welcome back. So earlier we were talking about the story of Boudicca and the sources behind the story and why she may or may not have been real. She's certainly real enough in the minds of many modern-day Brits, and with that in mind, she has been reinvented, reimagined over the years in a number of different moulds. So during the Renaissance period and 
shortly afterwards, the European peoples at the time kind of had a fascination with uh, mythological or legendary characters of old, and they wanted to create artworks and dedication of them. So it's sure. at that time that the story of Boudicca kind of re-emerges, isn't it? Sure, in the same way that we see re-emergence of Greek and Roman culture, we can see like the re-emergence of different folk heroes and different mythologies. Yeah, and during the reign of Queen Elizabeth I, perhaps because Britain was being led by a female ruler. The Virgin Queen! A red-headed female ruler. Interest in Boudicca comes back. A couple of William Shakespeare's contemporaries... Francis Beaumont and John Fletcher write a play called Bondica uh, in honour of Queen Boudicca. And then we can fast forward to the reign of Queen Victoria. So we've got another female ruler of the UK and uh, actually her namesake as well, uh, Victoria, the victorious queen. And so there is this real resurgence and interest in Boudicca at that time as well. Uh, so Alfred Lord Tennyson writes a poem called Boudicca. Uh, I think this is when the name Boudicca gets really popularized as well. Uh, a number of different ships are named after her. And then Thomas Thornycroft constructs Boudicca and her daughters, the, the statue that we were talking about earlier. The royal family were really on board to, with this to the extent that uh, King Alfred was actually lending horses as models for this sculpture. And th this time as well, London Bridge uh, kind of adopts its more, uh, or sorry, Broadford Bridge adopts its more common nickname now. It's known as Battle Bridge because uh, during the sacking of Londinium, Boudicca destroyed one of, the, one of the larger bridges there at the time. So yeah, she really kind of enters the mind's eye at that time and then becomes popular amongst some of the early feminist movements as well. So Boudicca is labelled as a feminist and there are some obvious reasons for this. She's a strong woman uh, who is standing up for her family. She's standing up against male aggressors. She's not going to ask anyone to come and fix a tap for her. Yeah, she she asks for help, but only so that she can lead armies. Yeah. Right? She is certainly front and center in this mythology of Boudicca. And she is not just leading an army, she's also fighting in the army. So she is a warrior queen. Yeah, she's a real rosy riveter. Yeah. Um, and she was co-opted by the early suffragette movement. It's my understanding that uh, they use Boudicca as, as an icon. Kind of problematic, don't you feel? For me, Boudicca is not a feminist. And she's not a feminist because you could put a woman in a position of power that doesn't automatically make her a feminist. Mm -hmm. she, she is a strong woman, but she's not fighting for equal rights. She's not fighting for equal treatment of women or for the equality between sexes. She is fighting solely for her people and for her people uh, to rid themselves of their Roman oppressors. Yeah, you you know, people often refer to as Margaret Thatcher as the Iron Lady. She didn't really do much for advancing the cause of of women 
in modern day UK. She doesn't make it easier for women to enter politics. Some, t- some would say she even makes it harder for women to enter politics. Yeah, uh, she's no AOC. I'll say that much. And the same with Boudicca. I I think you're right. She demonstrates, I, I don't want to sound completely condescending, but she demonstrates a kind of can-do attitude. <laughs> but she, she definitely gets it done. But for what reason? She's not fighting for the equality of women. And actually... This, again, is looking at this through this really Roman lens, this idea that it should, that it was strange for her to lead an army full of men and other women. Yeah, completely disregarding the fact that there were other queens of Celtic tribes. So if you're to say like, oh, well, she's a feminist simply because she's a mechanic, you know, mm-hmm. in our times, well, that doesn't make her a feminist, that makes her a mechanic. Yeah. You know, that because Boudicca is a queen, that doesn't make her a feminist. There were other queens. Yeah, it would be like somebody coming from a country where there are zero female politicians and pointing to female politicians and, and being like, oh my goodness, you know, they're so advanced. They're, they're feminists. And it's like, really, well, by, by this stage, they're not. They're, they're kind of doing what they, they should be expected to do, really. They should be expected to be uh, able to do that. So, not a feminist icon. However, the subject of some feminist literature, most recently uh, the book What Would Boudicca Do? By Elizabeth Foley and Beth Coates. Mm. So, the book is uh, marketed as Everyday Problems Solved by History's Most Remarkable Women. Yeah, they use examples of women throughout history, actually some lesser covered examples. So I don't think they've included the likes of Marie Curie and Joan of Arc. They've they've opted for maybe slightly more obscure examples of powerful women to highlight different ways in which modern women can empower themselves. So the example of Boudicca is used in the chapter uh, that that focuses on standing up for yourself. Sure. They uh, also have Mae West and being body positive, Hedy Lamarr and knowing your worth. Yeah, etc, etc. Rosa Parks standing up to bullies. So... Can we dispute the Boudicca would be about standing up for yourself? No. Does that automatically make her a feminist? Also, no. She's also been co-opted by, uh, let's say, some less than savoury elements in British politics. So she seems to be a recurring figure in the far right of British politics. An example being uh, the BNP, the British National Party, who rose to prominence during the early noughties, sorry, the mid-noughties, I should say, uh, famously had uh, their their battle bus, their campaign bus was named after Boudicca. So I guess this image of this strong, pure British woman kicking Johnny Foreigner out of our country is something that they're kind of into. Yeah, it's... uh, First off, the Celts were not originally Mm. from Britain. Secondly, she... That's because everybody is from Africa. That's, well, yes. In in a very roundabout (laughs) way, yes. But uh, they were in a few other places before they they arrived in Britain. Also, Boudicca's story is the story of... It's not even the story of the plucky underdog in in a lot of senses. It just feels really warped and... Sure, I mean, how can you compare people who are trying to find work and make a living for themselves and and following the rules of a society that they've entered into to uh, a Roman 
army who has taken over your country, stripped you of your ways to defend yourself, and raped your people. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not the same thing yeah. in any means. So co-opting this, this heroine for what she did to try and kick out an invasion versus like trying to kick out legal immigrants is mm-hmm. uh the the romans who were legitimately stealing taxes versus uh migrant workers who are paying taxes for example i think this is just this is a through line that you see with all far right groups throughout history they love taking uh cherry picking certain aspects of mythology saying that it's exclusively their mythology or their history or their culture and then bending it and reshaping it for their own purposes the example that kind of jumps to my mind immediately is the nazis and their use of norse mythology and norse runes i think there are campaign groups in places like norway now that are actively trying to stop far-right groups from using norse runes in any of their propaganda and and they're saying like look this just doesn't belong to you please don't use it yeah i mean famously hitler co-opting the swastika a symbol of peace yeah Um, and also even even something like proud boys making like the okay symbol suddenly a symbol of yeah so now if you want to indicate somebody that you you are fine with something using your index finger and your thumb then uh, you look like a member of the alt-right and that's just that's not okay i'm not going to stop doing that um if somebody shouts something to me and i'm like okay and i give them the like the hand signal um yeah it doesn't uh, i'm not affiliated with the proud boys just in case i need to put that on record so yeah this is obviously I i think there is something in there i think there is something in the idea of not allowing yourself to be downtrodden by a seemingly uh larger force or allowing yourself to be pushed around or bullied maybe you shouldn't go out and like burn down buildings full of people or like sew body parts of one person onto like other body parts of other people maybe that's not such a good thing but um, I, th- I think there are some real positives that could be taken away from this story, regardless of how grounded in reality it actually is. Yeah, I think we also have to use cultural context when we look at powerful women through a feminist lens. You know, you have to be aware of the context that they live in and the way that they were allowed uh, to live. You know, we can't say that Boudicca is necessarily a feminist because she wasn't fighting for equal rights. But for her, like, this wasn't a fight for equal rights in terms of, like, man versus woman. This was a fight for freedom. Mm-hmm. And she's doing that the only way that she knows how. Mm-hmm. She she doesn't have, like, other people to, to look for. There's no such thing as a Geneva Convention or NATO or anything else. You know, she has only herself and possibly the other tribes to stand up against. And ultimately, she fails. There are other powerful women in the past who are often cited as feminists like Catherine the Great. Or there is a really fascinating story of Cheng Shi, who was a prostitute who becomes honestly one of the most powerful pirate lords uh, in the entire world. Does being powerful make you a feminist? A powerful woman make you a feminist? I would argue no. I, I've got to say, even if you're a less powerful pir- pirate lord, you 
already sound amazing because you have the words pirate and lord in your in your name tag so you don't even have to be the most powerful or even like the top 10 most powerful pirate lords i'm gonna respect you yeah she maybe chunks to somebody that we need to cover in a future episode yeah so i think i'd like to quickly dip into catherine the great and possibly the reasons she could be a feminist is because she institutes more female education uh, higher level education and also a lot of different places say that she had so many lovers, so she's a feminist because she's sex positive. A lot of women had a lot of lovers throughout history. That doesn't make them feminists. I mean, go sex, enjoy what you want, but that doesn't make you a feminist. Um, Cheng she commanded a fleet of 1,800 ships, possibly 20,000 to 40,000 pirates. And she did have like a history of women's protection. She, if any pirate raped, was um, unfaithful or propagated sexual violence against women captives, they were put to death. But then also, if they had consensual sex with a female captive, both of them were put to death. So... She doesn't sound super <laughs> sex positive, I'm going to be honest with you. Also, can you imagine the pirates that, like, jump on board that ship and they're like, ah, oh, we can't work to work with you. We're like, when does the raping and pillaging begin? And she's like, oh, about that. This is a different kind of ship. And they're like, oh, okay. Oh, no, no raping. Oh. Just the pillaging. It sounds awful. <laughs> Oh no, I guess it'll just give me more time for my embroidery. And there's a, a bunch of pirates trying to embroider, but they've only got like hooks for hands. Um, okay. Yeah, strange. <laughs> anyway, so um, I guess that's that's it for today's episode, huh? Should we give people a preview of next time? Uh, sure, but before we do that, um, we should have one uh, weird fact that we learned throughout this rabbit hole. Okay. Um, so... Completely unrelated to Boudicca, but while researching Rome, you asked me what what was their calendar? Like, you know, we have obviously like a mm. Christian-centric calendar in that, you know, we start from BCE, before Common Era, but previously it was before Christ. Yeah, BC and, then, and AD, yeah. Um, but obviously Romans didn't believe in that. So what, what were their years? And they had a system of years based on the founding of Rome called AUD. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so kind of fascinating to me. Th- things that you don't think about when you are thinking about history, you know, what was their calendar system and what was what year did they think it was? Mm-hmm. So for us, it was uh, BCE 700. But for them, it was AUD 1. That mm-hmm. was when Rome was founded. Yeah, my weird fact, I mean, this is, uh, you know, I, I didn't know where the Celts originally came from. So it might not be weird to other people, but for me, uh, that's that's kind of like a, a minor mind explosion. So yeah, that's, that's my weird fact that I'm going to take away today. Next time round, we are going to be covering C. C is for, should we tell them next time? We'll tell you next time. All right, guys. Take care for now, and we will catch up with you next time. Cheer, bye. Ciao. Enter the Rabbit Hole is written and presented by William Grant and Alicia Palmer. The music was created by Glenn Marshall. More information and sources can be found in the episode description. You can email us at etrhthepod at gmail or follow us on Instagram at etrhthepod. Thanks for listening.